This is Billy Carson with ForbiddenKnowledge.tv. Forbidden Knowledge TV has just reached its one-year anniversary. That's right, one year. And as a show of appreciation, we are giving all new subscribers a free 30-day trial of ForbiddenKnowledge.tv. That's 30 days to binge watch thousands of movies, documentaries, conferences, workshops, lectures, yoga classes, meditation courses, and so much more. So log on to ForbiddenKnowledge.tv from your computer or mobile device or get the Forbidden Knowledge TV app on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon, iTunes, or Google Play today and use coupon code 30DAYSFREE. That's coupon code 30 days free on ForbiddenKnowledge.tv today. Hello, hello, hello. What's up, everyone? Thank you for joining another episode of the Forbidden Knowledge Podcast. And uh, give everybody a chance to get in here. I see the rooms are filling up already. I'm on multiple platforms. And let me also send out this text message right quick, get all the notifications in, that we are live. Live, live, live. All right. Hope everyone's having a phenomenal day. Uh, it's been a lot of stuff going on. I was on pretty late last night. I think we were on until about 1.30 a.m. last night on this YouTube account. I was on here with Elizabeth Hookstra. We were talking about shadow work. If you want to watch that video, go check that video out. We were talking about shadow work. It was a deep conversation. And uh, I think a lot of people that listened to us got a lot, a lot out of it, which is great. Okay. So that was very, very good. Um, I'm going to start off tonight talking a little bit about the the Anunnaki. And then I'm going to take questions and answers. I'm not going to talk too long because I really want to have time to do the Q&A with you guys. All right. So I am going to do that. But I do want to start off with just a little bit of information about the Anunnaki and... uh, a little bit about my theory on who these beings are and uh, you know are and were or are they still here all that kind of good stuff you know and so we're just going to touch on that a little bit uh today and then I'm going to take Q&A from everyone and you know I'm going to try to spend a good amount of time trying to answer and feel some good questions all right so 
You've heard me talk about the Anunnaki a lot over the years. It's the primary force of the growth of forbidden knowledge has been because of my talks on ancient civilizations. Primarily, uh, you know, one of the biggest topics in that would be the, uh, the Anunnaki. And who were they? Well, the Anunnaki are, in my opinion, a class of beings that came to this planet from outside this world, from space. According to the, uh, the ancient records and ancient civilizations from all around the world, they all had accounts of these beings coming here. And they all claimed to have come from outside of this planet to this planet. Most of the time, they claimed to have come from another star system. And so it's pretty interesting. And they came here, in my opinion, they built what we would call the Atlantean civilization. Okay, Atlantis was not just a ring city. Atlantis was much, much more than that, much more than just a ring city. And um, just like you have on Earth, you have capitals, right? And now in my state, there's a capital. In every state, there's a capital. And uh, those capitals then have a governor that dictate what happened, the laws and rules that dictate what happened in that state. Well, the Atlantean civilization was extremely similar. As a matter of fact, I hypothesize we copied the current system we have now from the Atlanteans slash Anunnaki. And why call them Anunnaki? Well, you have to understand a couple of things. First is, the uh, if you were to get on a spaceship right now and fly to another planet, the beings you meet there would ask you, you know, who are you? And you would say, well, we are Earthlings. You wouldn't say I'm a Floridian or I'm a New Yorkian or I'm a uh, you know, a Californian, you would say I'm an earthling. And then, you know, the layers to this thing, you also are a Floridian, right? So, you know, you're North American, then you're a Floridian. You could break it down even further than that. Well, the Atlantean civilization had established a global civilization on earth, not only a global civilization, but they also established a interplanetary civilization. I've done many, many talks on this, um, you know, many, many, many talks. You can go on Forbidden Knowledge TV and, and, and watch a lot of this stuff. But the Atlantean civilization, in my opinion, was a ringed city, okay? Uh, started off as one capital in the middle of the Atlantic. But there were many more capitals on Earth uh, over time, and they covered the entire planet, and so pre-Diluvian, uh, this entire planet was totally set up totally different than post-Diluvial. is after the Great Flood, everything changed to a new system. But before then, uh, we're looking at a system where we had capitals of Atlantis all over the planet with different people ruling over different regions of the planet. And these were Anunnaki relatives or, or, or cohorts or pantheon, as they call them in Sumerian much later down into the Greek, okay? And uh, unfortunately what happens is once you create a, a civilization uh, that is so advanced, but it comes in contact with a species of hominid that's less advanced, the less advanced hominid will deify that, uh, those people and proclaim them to be gods, which is exactly what happened here on earth. This is how we got religious systems and everything else. We had people that visited this planet 
that look just like us and we look just like them. Why would we look like them? Because Earth is an abandoned seed colony. And then they came here much later after the seeds were dropped and they began a genetic modification in order to create a slave race. And it wasn't just one color. It was every color. So it's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting, a very deep and a very long story. I mean, you can literally talk about the Anunnaki for months and months and months, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and still not cover everything. Well over a million tablets have been discovered around the world. And I do mean around the world. Um, As a matter of fact, an indigenous Native American chief in his burial mound was discovered with a Sumerian cuneiform tablet in his pocket. What is that doing in the North Americas? An entire proto-Sumerian cuneiform writing and metric system was discovered in Mesoamerica, which is now considered, you know, uh, Mexico and down into Yucatan. How is that possible? The metric system is supposed to be brand spanking new. We just discovered it. No, we just rediscovered what already existed. See? Pretty interesting stuff. So I'm going to do a very light, light, very quick overview on cargo cults. So you can get an understanding of what happened to us on this planet. And then I'm going to go into a little bit of Q&A on this topic. All right. So let me share my screen here. And we'll do a I'm just going to do a few pages uh, of this PowerPoint. Not too many. Who are these people right here? These are actually an indigenous tribe in the atolls. So back during World War uh, II, American troops were going out to these different islands in the South Pacific. Uh, Even during World War I, they were going out there, but they were coming across these indigenous tribes. And in doing so, uh, they were running experiments on different types of weapons, obviously. But in doing so, what they would bring these tribes in to get their cooperation and collusion They would bring them container loads of food, clothes, supplies, tools, things they had never seen before. Things they had never seen before. This right here, what you're looking at is a photo of an existing cargo cult still running and operating right now. You can see that these people even have USA painted on their chest because that's what the soldiers had. They have these sticks set up like with bayonets at the end because they saw soldiers walking with Guns that had bayonets on the end, on the tips, right? They marched like the uh, like their gods marched. Uh, and they even created run- runways and all kind of things to try to bring the gods back so they can bring them back more cans of spam. But the cargo cult, the term appeared in 1945 at the end of the Pacific War. <clears throat> Anthropologists rapidly embraced the neoglism to label the Melanesian social movements that had come to their attention during the colonial era. Now, this is interesting, as well as post-war movements that captured uh, ethnographic attention. A Southwest Pacific example of a messianic or a malarian movement, once common throughout the colonial world, the model cargo cult was an agitation or organized social movement of Melanesian villagers in pursuit of cargo. They wanted more cans of spam and clothes and tools and everything else. They thought that these people flying on these planes were gods, coming in on these boats were gods. By means of renewed or invented ritual action, they hoped it would 
uh, induced ancestral spirits or other powerful beings to provide for them. Typically, an inspired prophet with messages from those spirits persuaded a community that social harmony and engagement is improvised ritual. So they started dancing and marching and flag raising and everything else. They created a complete religion around the visitation of the U.S. military soldiers that went to these islands. It was often Western commercial goods and money, but it could also signify moral salvation, existential respect, or proto-nationalistic anti-colonial desire for political autonomy. Although some one-time cargo cults have been institutionalized as indigenous churches or local political organizations and remain active, few movements of the classic cargo sort emerged after, the most, uh, after most of the Melanesian colonies achieved national independence in the 1970s. Cargo cult stories, however, today continue to uh, circulate widely beyond Melanesia, serving as useful metaphors of contemporary unrequitable desire, both ordinary and peculiar, a desire to want to worship something just because you don't understand it. When a more advanced race uh, comes in contact with a less advanced race, the less advanced race of people or beings will deify the higher, more advanced race because it will be like magic to them. Everything will look like it's magic. Oh, he's touched a guy and healed him. It's magic. They can, they, they can create multitudes of food out of nowhere. It's magic. You ever seen a Star Trek replicator? That can create multitudes of food, too. We have the first rudimentary repl food replicator being created right now and actually been tested. Yeah, everything you see on these Star Trek and all these different shows is coming to reality, coming to fruition. Imagine you have a Star Trek type of a device, a food replicator. And then now you just create food for the multitudes because you can press a button and, and you can restack atoms into a format that's edible. Very simple stuff. It's not, it's not even that intricate. So you can see here, they've now institutionalized this and they've got this dogma. And so even as young men growing up, you go through these rituals, you make these, flat, you, these flags, you take reeds and you build airplanes. They, they carve out runways out of the uh, out of the out of the, the tree line, and uh, they sit there and look at the sky, waiting for the gods to return with more cans of spam and more weapons and uh, and, and tools and clothes and everything else. Anything else you could think of? It's a cargo cult, just like the entire planet Earth. Earth is a gigantic cargo cult. This is some of the stuff they've recreated just from seeing it, right? Satellite dishes, airplanes, fighter jets. Just from seeing them with the eye and interacting with these people, these, now, these are now holy symbols to them. These are holy symbols, holy ritualistic symbols that they guard. Just like you would guard your, your, you know, your house with your life, your family with your life, they guard these things. These are symbols of the gods. So anthropologists have invented or cultivated a number of important keywords, including culture, ethnicity, worldview, socialization, ethnography, and rite of passage. Among these terms is cargo cult, which, although more particular in scope, has enjoyed surprising popularity both inside the discipline and beyond. Peter Worsley, who compiled an early overview of cargo cults 
in The Trumpet Shall Sound, 1957, offered what had already become the standard definition of cargo cults. Strange religious uh, movements in the South Pacific that appeared during the last few decades. In these movements, a prophet announces the immense, uh, the imminence of the end of the world in a cataclysm which will destroy everything. Then the ancestors will return or God or some other liberating power will appear, bringing all those goods the people desire and ushering in a reign of eternal bliss. This is a universal, global, uh, millennial um, thing that many generations have gone through, through civilizations rising and falling, coming up with the same exact concept that the gods will return and it'll be this eternal bliss, a.k.a. heaven. And um, it's really this kind of uh, belief system and this kind of need to um, to worship something outside of yourself literally has stalled mankind out from being able to take back control of their own planet and take our rightful place in the stars. I'm going to stop this because I won't be able to play properly. So let me come back here to you guys. I don't want to spend too much time on that whole thing there. But this is what it's all about, guys. It's all about human beings misunderstanding beings that are more, much more intelligent because they have been around longer, that have developed different levels of technologies that appear to be magical. Right now, there is a device that you can put on your head, right around your crown. And this device will pick up the light codes coming out of your brain and transmit them to a remote control car. I've played this video from the scientists in my lots of my, my workshops and classes. A lot of you have probably seen it. And so you can, you can control a remote control car with your thoughts, make it move backward, make it move forward, turn left, turn right. There are now devices in houses for people that are paraplegic where they can wear the similar type of device head and actually control appliances, TVs, phones, everything else, including their, even their own wheelchair by thought. They can make it move by thought. If you were, if I were to take a person that was a paraplegic that was in a wheelchair that had that capability and had some other fancy technological things that, uh, that they can control without even moving a finger and took that to a planet of people that were just learning how to make the bow and arrow. And they would see this just this person in this wheelchair uh, with this technology that gives him a little bit of freedom. They would automatically and instantaneously believe that this guy was a god. In most cases, a lot of them would drop to their knees and start worshiping almost instantaneously. The fact that he can move things around by without even speaking a word or or lifting a finger would have these people believing that this person has to be a God because if he's not a God, how in the world can he do this? It's all about perception and context. Now, what happened here with this is the, the Anunnaki, they did some good things and they did some bad things. When they came to this planet, they realized the opportunity here, the opportunity that they crashed and they came in involved with or, or ran into a race of beings that were probably generations removed from who they truly were. That's us on the planet. And they took it in most cases and they masqueraded as gods. 
They masqueraded as gods, not all of them, but most of them masqueraded as gods. They pretended to be something that they were not. They got people to worship them. They shortened our lifespan by genetic modification so that we wouldn't have time to get smart enough to figure out what was going on. They put us to work doing hard labor all over the planet, not just one race, all races were enslaved. And on top of that, they, uh, you know, they made us worship them. And then they even had battles against each other over who was the greater God. They really had a God complex and utilizing human beings as the child to do the wars and fight and the stealing and the robbing and the killing and everything else. And so this is the saga of, of you know, uh, a race of beings that comes and creates a breakaway civilization on a planet that's already inhabited by a seed race of people that are generations removed from the truth and who they really, how powerful and, and who they truly were and where they came from. And, and then take advantage, and which is what happened. Unfortunately, that's what happened. These beings went to war so many times, eventually they, they actually lit off nuclear weapons on this planet. And before actually most of them leaving, turning and leaving uh, the planet to avoid the nuclear fallout. In the Sumerian tablets, it's called the evil wind. And when the evil wind comes after the, after the strike of this weapon, people's hair and nails fall out, their eyes start bleeding, and all this crazy, their noses start bleeding. It's the signs of radiation sickness. And that's why you have Mohenjo-Daro in the Indus Valley, where you have the buildings that are vitrified, turned to glass, dead bodies still laying in the street today. Right now, when we're talking, dead bodies still laying in the street holding hands. No animals will eat them. Because why? Because they have higher than background level radiation. The sands of Giza, where you see the Nile is completely gone from the sides of the pyramids. Why? There was a strike there, a nuclear strike over 3,000 degree temperature. That's why you have glass balls underneath the sand at Giza. Those glass balls are now created or carved into scarab beetles to honor the gods, the gods of war. And you can find this all over the planet, evidence of an ancient war that happened. So these beings, not only did they get the God complex and then enslave us and then use us, but then they turned on each other. These people were crazy, crazy people, right? Crazy people, man. And unfortunately, a lot of their DNA is in our body because they cross-mated and genetically tinkered and everything else. And so you wonder why we live in a predominantly male-run civilization on Earth. And look what the males have done. Look what the unbalanced power of male energy, masculine energy versus female energy. We've got the female energy all the way down and the masculine energy all the way up. There's not enough balance. And because there's no balance, you see what's happened on the planet. War after war after war after war after war. That's masculine energy. That's not feminine energy. That's not feminine. If you go to... Egypt right now, go to Cairo. What, what are you going to see there? You're going to see women being suppressed. I'm going to bring it to you in a, uh, a much easier way to understand. So women are being suppressed in the physiological form in Egypt, in, uh, you know, all over Egypt, because the religion that dominate now, the Arabs moved in and have dominated with their Arab religion. Women can't even show their, uh, their anything except for their eyes in most cases, and they can't even look a man straight in the face. They have limited... Um, Limited um, powers. They can barely do anything, right? Most of the time they can just work back home and that's it. And so they wear these gigantic robes over their body. They can't show their hair. They can't show anything. I remember I went to a store to buy some some oil, some some uh, frank 
And the lady gave me my change like this, looking away from me, handing me my change because she wasn't allowed to look at me in my face. But when you look at the area, what do you see? It's overrun with waste and um, garbage all in the streets, right? They have a severe, severe problem with um, littering. Littering is everywhere. You see there, everything is the same color. There's no color. Everything is the same color. It's not because it's hot and it's sunny. It's because they don't, they don't want to use another color. It's a giant bachelor pad. Everything is brown. Everything is dirty. Everything is dusty. The buildings are collapsing. There's no plants. There's no flowers. Everything's one color. It's like you can't wait to get away from where the people live to get back to the ancient stuff because the ancient stuff even seems more safe and more sound architecturally. You want to get away from where the people live. It looks like buildings are collapsing every day over there. Every single day, buildings are collapsing with people in them. No windows, no doors, no running water, no toilets. So what does that tell you? It tells you the balance is off. And every few minutes, they're jumping on the ground and, and smashing their head into the ground, saying these prayers and so forth and so on, which are really just casting spells on their own selves. They don't even realize it. But what is this? What is going on? It's an it's a imbalance in energy and frequency, masculine versus feminine. The Sophia energy is not balanced properly. And what's happening is you see it manifest in the physical form in a place like Cairo. And that that you could take that same thing and ap- apply it everywhere you go on the planet. If you look at the people that have ordered 99% of the wars on this planet, it's been men ordering other men to go to battle so that they can profit in some weird kind of way. And the people that accept these missions and go on these battles get nothing out of it except for a sense of pride. Uh, and in the long run, you know, over time, millions of people, maybe close to billions over the course of time have, have gone, passed away over the most ridiculous things, including now even this, you know, more recently, let's look at Vietnam. We have the Gulf of Tonkin lie, which is now admitting open, plain knowledge that they lied about an attack at the Gulf of Tonkin to create the Vietnamese war and then send all of our troops to fight over there for 20 years. People doing two and three tours in Vietnam and killing people and bragging about it and coming back and, and dropping napalm on these people and everything else. Right? I had a family member go over there and do tour and, and got a purple heart dropping napalm on these people and killing these people who you, you don't even know. So some guy in a $10,000 suit can, uh, can get fatter. So fat, his, he can't even buck, buckle his belt. More male, masculine energy. Got you thinking you're doing something to fight for freedom. You're not fighting for freedom. You're just killing more people at the behest of these fake gods. The same fake gods from, from ancient times, they now have propped themselves up as in positions of power or the illusion of positions of power on this planet, mimicking these ancient gods and still doing the same thing those ancient gods were doing to us. They're still doing it now today. In fact, this family member was so proud of the work that he did over there. He comes back and posts on his social media account. Hey, proud to have served in Vietnam. Really? Well, why? Because you killed a whole bunch of people you didn't even know based on lies. So this is the conundrum that we're in. We have this DNA, this warring DNA in our bodies that is coming from these people who are now gone and have left us here. And we've got these... um, Puppet tier gods in place. You call them polytricksters. You call them politicians. I call them polytricksters. And uh, and they're you know they're running the show. 
and they have they're just pulling all of our strings. And the way that this uh, system is supposed to be set up is that the government and the polytricksters are supposed to be working for us, and we're supposed to be the bosses. But they got it flipped around, and they have us thinking that we work for them, and they tell us what to do. <laughs> it's not even supposed to be that way. They create laws and all kind of things to keep us in check, and we're the ones that are supposed to be keeping them in check. They flipped the whole script on us, and we just sat back and let it happen. That's why I tell people, don't complain about the stuff that's going on. Expose it and talk about it. But remember, look in the mirror and you'll find out who's responsible for allowing it to happen. All of us, every single person on this planet, all 8 billion people have allowed this stuff to happen for eons. And we just continue to let it happen because we want to fall for the divide and conquer tactics. So we can continue to fight each other while they create their heaven on earth and chop up the power. Okay. So with that being said, guys, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take a little Q&A and start talking, you know, answering some questions for you guys. All right. So let's see where we're at here. Uh, let me find a couple of questions. I actually saw a few passing by. Uh, there's so many, so many people in the chat right now. I didn't even get the same, a chance to send that full text message out. But if you can, please click the like button and share this video. All right. Uh, let me find some questions to answer here. Uh, here's a question. Was Osiris a son of Marduk? Good question, B. Ann Raymond. Actually, Osiris was not a son of Marduk, but they were relatives. Osiris is really ancient, super ancient. Some of these beings' lifespans will blow you away, okay? When I say blow you away, I mean they're going to blow you away. Um, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a couple of years of the Sumerian Kings list right quick, okay? Let me read a little bit of this to give you an idea of the lifespans that we're talking about here. <clears throat> the lifespans are crazy, crazy, crazy numbers, all right? So you can understand what I'm talking about. Now, the Sumerian Kings list, I went and saw it in person. It's located at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England right now. I have some great photos and video I took there just a few weeks ago, and I'm going to make an entire video on it. But just listen to this. Alulim became king. He ruled for 28,800 years. Think about this for a second. One person ruled, ruled for 28,800 years. This is on Earth. Now, forget about the time he had to be born and grow up and live, and then 28,000, just the ruling part. Imagine the lifespan of some of these people. Alajar ruled for 36,000 years. Two kings, they ruled for 64,800 years. Then Eridug fell. That's where the capital was at that time. And the kingship was taken to Batabera. Batabera. Enmen Luana ruled for 43,200 years. One person. Okay. Enmel Ganana ruled for 28,800 years. Dumuzid, the shepherd, ruled for 36,000 years. Three, three kings, they ruled for 108,000 years at Betabir. I'm going to do a full king's list reading another time, but... I want, I want to insert that just to give you an idea of the concept of where I'm going with this. Osiris is super ancient. He hails from the Orion. The Orion is the original uh, 
the stars are they're up there to try the three stars with respect to Ryan Belt. There's planets there, and those planets have people, civilizations there. He hails from that that star system to Earth. He brought with him the uh, the creation of the first Jedi uh, tribe, D J E D I Jedi, and the teachings of the Jedi, the same ones you see like you know on the movie Star Wars. Well, that is just a George Lucas was very smart in the, in the fact that he went into ancient tabs and went to the ancient mysteries and learned about the Jedi Knights that existed here millennia and millennia ago that hail from another star system and fight throughout the galaxy, uh, according to the ancient texts. And so Orion was the founder of the Jedi Knights. So he was here long before Marduk. Marduk is actually the son of Enlil, who was uh, Enki, Ea Enki's brother, and their father was named Anu. Okay. All right, let's see what else we got here. By the way, let me bring this up. Brian Davis is right. Enlil became Yahweh. So the Yahweh in the Bible is actually Enlil. The, uh, the thing that Enlil did was he flipped the script on his brother, Enki, who's also known as Ptah in the land of Kem. And by the way, Ptah is the person that came up with the Lord's Prayer that made it into the Bible. You know, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us day of daily bread, forgive us our debts, forgive our debtors, but leads not into temptation. You know, that whole prayer, that whole prayer by heart. So that prayer, it comes from the Sumerian tablets and it comes from, I'm sorry, the ancient Egyptian text. Ptah wrote that prayer down in the ancient land of Kem, but long before it was called Egypt. And that prayer was passed along. Eventually it made it into the modern day Bible as the Lord's Prayer. But what, what, uh, what Enlil did, he he didn't like the way his brother was treating humans so nicely and and loving them and wanting to help them and and all that and enlighten them and so he decided to try to de- uh, demonize his brother and make the people think that his brother was Satan when in reality he was actually Satan he was Satan the Lord of Eden okay but he flipped it and said look you don't follow him because my brother is the evil one. And he started trying to pass it around. But in the Bible, he became Yahweh. And he took that role, masquerading as a god. And he did a lot of killing in the Bible. If you look at the Bible and go through it top to bottom like I have, and then I want you to take the time to mark down all the murders and killings. And then I want you to come back and tell me who's doing all the killing in the Bible. Is it God or is it Satan? (laughs) And when you come back with the shock on your face, I know you figured it out. All the killings being done by God. right? Not the creator of the universe, God. It's a masquerading God in the Bible. Not a real creator of any universes at all. Good question. Let's see here. Uh, Let me see. I'm trying to find something here. A lot of good comments, a lot of good statements. There's a question. Yes, so what says, what role do the Archons in the Nag Hammadi play toward Anunnaki? Uh, or are they one in the same? Who was Yaldabaoth? So if you read the Nag Hammadi scripts, I think I have them on my desk here somewhere. Yeah, let me see. It's apocrypha. I got, oh, yeah, I got a Nag Hammadi right here. The Nag Hammadi. See? Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Now, Kamadi scripts right here. 
Um, and I also have the Apocrypha right here. All right. So the Nakamati is interesting because I did a whole video kind of a little bit about what the, their belief system is. The fact that the God of the Bible is actually the same Satan that the Christians are running from. They don't believe it. They've been hoodwinked and tricked into thinking that that Yahweh and Jehovah Jireh and all this stuff is really their savior. But in true reality, it's not. And so uh, the book is designed to really lead someone into damnation without them even knowing about it by taking away and robbing them all their internal God power, your energy vampires. In the same way that the archons are talked about in the non-commodity, these archons are interesting because one of them is a reptilian type of a being, but is multidimensional. So this is pretty interesting because so far the non-commodity is the only place that I have found ancient texts. I'm sorry, no, there's the second place. There's one more place that has to do with ethereals, which is um, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. So there's two places. There's two places. Let me correct. There's two places. The Hathors were, were also had a multidimensional capability to move between timelines, forward and backwards, and appear in different places at will. They can go from an energetic form into a solid uh, uh, avatar body form, and they would nudge humanity in specific directions. That's the Hathors from the land of Kem, much later became you know Egypt. And then in the Nakamadi, you have these reptilian, uh, described as reptilian type of hominids, that are multidimensional, that have the capability of attaching themselves to a human being in a weird kind of a multidimensional way where they almost puppeteer the person. If the person's operating at a specific frequency, they have the capability of attaching themselves to that person and not only, you know, living off their life force, but also even controlling them in ways to get them to do certain things. To what end? Nobody really understands the full agenda, but it's all dark. And then you have the other archon, which is described as when we see uh, like the typical gray alien. OK, it's got the big head with the big giant eyes, the dangly limbs, uh, you know, very small body. No, no, uh, a line for a slit for a mouth, no real ears, things like that. And both of these beings appear to be on dark missions. They appear to be on dark missions and interacting with mankind in ways that make them appear to be multidimensional by, by nature, whether they are, are multidimensional or they're using technology that allows them to phase shift into different light wave frequencies. Because right now, if I had a technology that I can change my visible light spectrum into a ultraviolet spectrum, while I'm sitting here, I would disappear to you, but I'd still be sitting here. And you wouldn't be able to see me. Why? Because human beings can only see 1% of the light spectrum. That's it. 1% is all we get. 1%. We don't see gamma rays. We don't see x-rays. We don't see ultraviolet. We don't see infrared. We don't see any of this stuff. If we did, we'd probably go crazy because there's so much stuff moving around you at all times. So we only get 1%. But these beings could be multidimensional or they could just have advanced technology that makes us see and not see them. They could be using cloaking devices. Uh, so to speak, right? The chat donations, by the way, I do see the chat donations coming. I appreciate every single one of you. So now, um, are these Anunnaki? Now, the interesting term about Anunnaki is like those who came from heaven to earth is a real definition. Like I talked about at the beginning of the show, people that are from somewhere else. If they are from somewhere else, they would be Anunnaki because it's a generalized term. Uh, if they are mentioned, it still would apply that they're from somewhere else. 
And so in that case, they would still be considered an alien, a.k.a. or an Anunnaki, which means the same exact thing. Somebody from somewhere else, not of this world. So in that case, they still would be Anunnaki. Now, this Yaldabaoth, uh, uh, you know, is another multidimensional uh, character. And again, is also another one of these beings that appears to have multidimensional capabilities, uh, but also seems to be solid and still can maneuver around the third dimension. So you have all these particular concepts and ideas about it. Now, I haven't ever seen an official text with that name in it, only from some of the accounts from people that have talked about it, you know, uh, teachers, um, wisdom keepers and stuff, you know, in different you know, online and in more modern times. However, it's a possibility that this is one of the beings that a, a lot of history is always handed down verbally. Um, but it's interesting that this being had a lot of these capabilities and a lot of these powers, in other words, advanced technology. They had very big heads. They had bigger brains. They had a higher, a much higher IQ. Uh, one, of the, one of the distinguishing factors between an, an Anunnaki, typically, and a human was the fact that the human's bone structure was much smaller, jaw was much smaller, and the, the uh, cranial was much smaller. We have two parietal plates, and a lot of times the, the skulls that we have found all around the world, most of them in, in Peru and in, um, in Sumeria, which was now Iraq, in uh Africa, which is uh, we're in the area of Egypt, um, and where else have we found some? And up in the Urals, they have found skulls that are huge, massive, elongated skulls with only one parietal plate. I'm sorry, folks, but that's not a homo sapien. And it's not from skull binding because it, it's more skull. There's more cranial mass. There's more volume, which means more brain mass. Where in skull binding, you reduce the size of the skull by binding it making less brain, uh, less uh, volume, which means less brain mass. So it's pretty interesting. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so much to this stuff. You could talk about it, for, you know, for so long. Good question here. Jamal Adris, does Mesopotamia predate Ethiopia? Now, this is an interesting question. So I'm glad you typed this. If you understand the pre-diluvial era, Things weren't really focused too much around Africa dealing with Homo sapiens yet. So in a very, um, I guess, common uh, logical way from just analyzing the tablets and looking back at the track record of history, antediluvial, before the flood, there was this um, situation where we had this, this advanced society that was built up. And this advanced society had reached a very, very high level globally. Now, that means that the area of Ethiopia was most likely already inhabited. What level of technology was there and who was who was running it? Not so clear on that. It hasn't been that hasn't been made that clear. What does become clear is after the flood, when civilization is rebuilt again and the headquarters of this experiment um, is moved from Mesopotamia into Africa after the great flood and everything is rebuilt again. And that's where you have a lot of the tribes and everything else uh, coming out of the mud and re-kickstarting civilization and all that good stuff. Uh, and Ethiopia then is on the map. So it's pretty interesting. It's hard to say if the ancient antediluvial Ethiopia was there with the same people or was it the uh, result of the post-flood. It only shows up on record. And now I'm only going from what I There's still probably 100,000 books I haven't even read yet. 
and the, you know you got books in Tibet, you got books in, underneath the the Vatican. But those I'm sitting in, I'm around, I got 400 books on my desk right now. Okay, they're everywhere. I've gone through so much text and books. I just haven't found any record of Ethiopians prior to the Great Flood. Only after the Great Flood. So I would have to, just based on what I know now in my context, I would have to say that they came after the Great Flood. So those are the original Jews on this planet. The Ethiopian Jews are the original Jews. There are no other Jews on this planet other than the Ethiopian Jews. You have the uh, European people came and and one time a long time ago and studied and learned and inherited the faith from the Ethiopians who still speak in Hebrew. They taught them the Hebrew. They taught them the Torah. They taught them about temple. They taught them, you know, the whole thing, how to write it and everything else. They took it back with them. You know, we're talking about Kazaria and all these other places in Europe. They took it back with them and then inherited the faith. Well, nothing is wrong with that, but a lot of people don't realize that the original Jews, which are blacker than I am, they're blacker than, than this microphone. They are uh, in Ethiopia. They still have their temple and their Torah and they and they practice their rituals and everything else still to this very day. But they're not allowed to go to Israel. Israel rebukes them. They don't want them there because, well, you, you know, the answer to that. You already, you already understand what that's all about it is what it is. The story of humanity. <laughs> what can you do? Let's see what we got here. Hold on. Boy, a lot of questions coming so fast, man. All right, let's see. Is there any living version? What's this here? Is there any living version of either Enlil or Enki? Um, That's a good question. Now, because these beings were so highly advanced technologically, and even spiritually, believe it or not, they even they knew that there was a creator of all because they said themselves that what they had done to the people of this planet, they were going to have to pay to the creator of all. The creator of all was going to come down on them in some time in the future. So they were even like, you know, we kind of went like, wow, wow, West Cowboys out here. And, uh, we're going to be in trouble. So even they knew there was a higher power than them. Um, but could they still be walking around, not only on Earth, but on any, any other planet? Why not? They have the technology. They have the elixir of life. They have the monoatomic gold and the and the uh, colloidal silver and the and the other little special elements they would add to it to make that elixir of life that would, was only for the the heroes of old they call themselves the savants and so uh, that mixed with technology man you can really if you know how to stop your telomeres from shrinking you can and you have stem cells you can pretty much live indefinitely which is where mankind is going on this planet as a matter of fact we now know that we can create. Uh, three times lifespan in mice just by stopping the shrink of, of mice telomeres. We now know that we can inject stem, we can create stem cells from your own body and then inject them back into different parts of your body to rejuvenate different parts of your body, ligaments, joints, the brain, and all that. We're this close now to understanding how to create an extended, a significantly extended lifespan. I'm talking about two, three, four thousand years a person can live. However, if we as the people on this planet, the 8,000 people don't take back control of this planet, they're going to sell us time. <laughs> Remember, I told you this now. And you keep playing this game if you want to out here, believing in all these politicians and praying to these politicians. I do mean praying to them. That's what's happening. Anytime you run out to that voting box and all this stuff and start screaming out and running around the streets with signs and holding up signs for these people, you're, you're, you're worshiping flesh and blood people that have no power except for the power that they put the boot on your neck, but no power to really 
uh, enlightening or, or enhance mankind in any kind of way, shape or form. And so that's a form of worship when you're chasing after all these poly tricksters racing after them down the streets and everything else. You must just go back to the ancient times and be with the Anunnaki and pray to them people. Same thing. They're worthless people. They have, they're not even real people. I think that they're just soulless avatars operating on matrix programming. I don't even think, I don't even think they have a soul. All right, let's see here. Right, let's see. Yeah. Somebody brings up a good point here. I want to make sure this is a good point. There is balance in the universe. Chicago UI. The Anunnaki are both good and bad. That is a fact. You know, I write about both in my book, The Emerald Tablets, Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, right? Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. And uh, this book is a bestseller in five countries right now today. As I'm speaking here, it's been a bestseller nonstop for three and a half years. But Thoth is the character, the main character in this book. And what I like about this guy, Thoth, he's not like his relatives. Whereas his relatives, a lot of them have proclaimed to be gods and masqueraded as gods. When he showed up on the scene in the land of Cam and the people dropped to grovel at his feet, he rose them up and said, hey, stand up, man. I'm a son of Atlantis. I'm here to help you re-kickstart civilization, bring back your high level of civilization. And um, at that moment, he had a choice. I can go ahead and play the God role or I can play the we're equality here role and I can help you guys. I'm here to teach you and help you. He chose, let me come in and help. Let me be in, of assistance. Let me be of service to you guys and bring you back to where you need to be. You see? And so and by that, by that account, yes, there are good and bad Anunnaki. Just like you have yin and yang. Yin and yang permeate the entire universe. Good and evil, dark and light, so forth and so on. It's everywhere. That is a fact. Let's see here. Ooh, there's a lot of good questions I'm trying to find now. A lot of, uh, a lot of statements so on. Okay, let me clear this up. Sophia says, when did Enlil become Marduk in the Bible? Okay, so uh, Enlil is not Marduk. Enlil is the father of Marduk. As a matter of fact, uh, the Great Sphinx was never carved with a lion's head. Like the mainstream wants to tell you, oh, hey, you have a head of a lion, and then they carved it to a face later on. That's why it's disproportionate. No, if you read the tablets, it tells you everything. So in the tablets... Um, Enki and Enlil were brothers and, uh, I'm sorry. And so I don't know, it's mixing up a little bit. Enlil is the, is the uncle of Marduk. That's what I meant to say. Enlil is the uncle. Enki is the father of Marduk. There's so many connections. My brain's got to go back into the genealogy, genealogy chart in my mind. So Enlil and Enki are brothers. Enlil is the uncle of Marduk and Enki is the father of Marduk. Okay. Marduk, I mean, he's in the Bible. He's in the, he's in the Jewish Torah. He's in the Jewish library. You can look up the name. He's everywhere. That's Amun-Ra in the ancient uh, Kemetic text and Egyptian text. That's Amun or Amun, Amun-Ra, much later pronounced Amen, right? He's the great Amen. And in some cases, even during the time of um, uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten, he was the Aten, the sun disk. 
who would rule from the sky. He had this giant flying disc, and he would just rule from the sky. And so um, what's interesting is, uh, so Enlil was really evil. I mean, this guy was brutal. And unfortunately, he rubbed off on his nephew, Marduk. Marduk aspired to be more like Enlil instead of, instead of wanting to aspire to be more like his dad. And who was Marduk's brother? Thoth. Thoth the Atlantean, the one that was depicted with the beak. He really had a face of a human. But the Great Sphinx originally was carved to Thoth's face, his brother, Marduk's brother's face. And you can see the features, what they look like there. And then when Marduk and Thoth were having too many um, issues, like they were <laughs> battling head to head, uh, Enki said, their father said, listen, Thoth, you go to the other side of the planet. Kickstart that whole Mesoamerican civilization. Just take some Olmecs with you. Take the Olmecs, go to that side of the world, and start something fresh, okay? And that's exactly what he did. He started in Teotihuacan and built a complex that mimicked uh, the Giza Plateau Three Pyramid structure, which all aligned with Orion. The pyramid base is the same exact side of the pyramid as the pyramid base at Giza, and it's exactly 50% of the height, and both pyramid cities or structures uh, plateaus are built on top of a water aquifer. And so because Marduk was so jealous of his brother Thoth and was so angry at him, as soon as he left, he went and recarved the face of the Sphinx to his own son's face. So now the face of the Sphinx is not Thoth anymore. It's Thoth's nephew, the son of Marduk, a.k.a. Amun-Ra. So it's interesting because you get a glimpse of what these people looked like. You get to see what their actual facial features looked like, which is pretty cool. They left some remnants of that behind for us to see with our own eyes, along with a lot of the artistic renderings uh, that come out of uh, Iraq with the Sumerians and everything else, which you can, you can now go to museums. Like I was in the British Museum and the Ashmolean Museum, and you can get really good looks at take pictures with these massive reliefs and statues that they left behind, all right? These carvings and so forth, pretty interesting stuff. Let's see. Thank you, Eric Jamza, for uh, being on the on the show today and just listening in. Yeah, I said Jedi. Logan Sincora, I said Jedi. D-J-E-D-I. That's the real Jedi. That's the real. That's where the term Jedi comes from. Of course, in Hollywood, they took off the D and just put it J-E-D-I. But the Jedi Knights has nothing to do with Star Wars. That's an actual ancient occult uh, group of people. And the Jedi Knights still exist till this very day. <laughs> they still exist till this very day. Let me see if I can find uh, something real quick for you guys while I got you on here and re with regards to the Jedi. An initiation. A couple of paragraphs from an initiation. Just so you can get a little more understanding of the power of the Jedi. Let's see if I can find one here. Return of the Jedi, D-J-E-D-I, is synonymous with raising consciousness or raising awareness. Who were or are the Jedi? The Jedi were the stable ones, the wisdom keepers of one mind and one spirit who 
of the Osirian mysteries comprise the living terrestrial body of the archetypal celestial Osiris. Contemporary Jedi are self-selecting regenerators of the cosmos. They are those who, regardless of race or creed, are awakening to mission in service to the planet and the epochal imperatives of stability, continuity, and regeneration. The Jedi sense and know Osiris' arising as their own. As Osiris awakens from the sleep of the eon, the Jedi also rise to the occasion, moving into a resonant relationship as the reconstellated members of the collective of Osiris. Therefore, as the mighty bones creak and the ancient one stirs, let the Jedi return. This is one of the most historical moments of our awakening and our call to prepare for the return of a Jedi. All right. Powerful stuff. So the Jedi, they're real and they're still here. They're still here and they're still fighting, believe it or not. And so let me go back in here and look for another one. What star system does Anubis come from? Now, that's a good question, Elijah Kirby. So these Anunnaki beings are from multiple star systems. I'm glad you asked this question. People tend to think that the Anunnaki, they all came from this planet named Nibiru. That's actually false, not accurate. When you start studying these texts, you have to go through a lot of different books. I got the whole Mahabharata up here. I've got the, uh, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Persians from the Folio Society. And then I've got the Egyptian books of the dead, right? With the Papyrus of Bani. I've got the, um, the Enuma Elish and, uh, written out for me. I've got the Atrahasis. I've got, uh, I've got the Indian Vedas here. I've got all these texts. I've got cylinder scrolls and I've got papyruses with the stories on them. So these beings, they are from multiple star systems, just like I read you uh, the information about the Jedi just a second ago, right? The initiation. Uh, and you realize that Osiris and Orion is the same thing. So that's his archetype. So Osiris is from Orion, and Orion actually means Osiris. But that's just one example of a being come from there. Now, Anubis comes from the dog star, okay? The dog star, which uh, is incredible because, you know, we know that the dog star is incredible that he's come from there because he kind of resembles a dog in the ancient hieroglyphs, right? He comes from that star. And then we have beings that come from uh, Aldebaran. And we have beings that come from the star system of the Pleiades, the seven, they call them the seven sisters even though the seventh star can't be seen anymore because it actually ran out of fuel and imploded on itself. So the naked eye can't see the seventh star, but we know that it was there because the ancients saw it and recorded it. Now in more modern times, we found the white dwarf that used to be what we call the seventh star. That would have been one of the brighter ones. There are millions of stars behind the seven sisters, the Pleiadian star system, but the brightest ones that shine up the most to us uh, there's only there's really only six, and so all these ancient records were having an account of seven. And we're going in modern times. Well, where's the seventh star? And finally, with the advancement of satellite technology, we were able to actually see it using the Hubble and find out that oh wow, hmm, there is a star there. It's just ran out of fuel. But uh, it's interesting. So people come from those star systems, 
they come from many, many star systems and uh, Zeta Reticulus and everything else. And so these beings are the Anunnaki. They're coming from multiple locations and Earth just happens to be one destination. Nibiru is mentioned in the Enuma Elish and the Atra Hasis. Uh, and it's a planet that some of these beings who are fleeing war crashed on. And then they kickstarted a whole civilization on that planet, which orbits a brown dwarf star that orbits our sun. And that that star that orbits our sun is now mainstream science. It's, we live in a binary solar system. We know this now. It's a fact. So it's pretty interesting stuff. All right. All right. Yeah. MPW, The Real Star Wars. I got a song called The Real Star Wars with Dame Dash, Donnie Arcade. Uh, who else is on that song? And myself, of course, I'm on the song. <clears throat> you got to check it out. The Real Star Wars. Also, Mob Deep from uh, Havoc from Mob Deep. Havoc from Mob Deep is on the, the theatrical version. So you want to look that up. The Real Star Wars. <clears throat> All right. The title Genesis, I heard it translates into generations of Isis. Any thoughts on this? You're absolutely correct. So in the book of Genesis, Genesis, you, uh, you're talking about the generations of Isis. And why is it the generations of Isis? Because, again, we have to see where the Bible copied the information from. They copied it from ancient texts and cylinder scrolls, which are very famous. They're in the British Museum. I just came back from the British Museum. I got a lot of great photos. And so what happens is the um, the Anunnaki were creating cloned people at first. They had to, let me just start over. They were getting ready to go to war with each other because they were doing the work, the EGG and the Anunnaki. The EGG are the lower Anunnaki. They call them the EGG. The EGG were getting fed up. They're like, we outnumber these people ruling over us, and we weren't supposed to be slaves. We we're supposed to be just, like, working. We, we, we love to do We're volunteers. We're not slaves. But they're... They got a, their boot on our neck and they got us like, we're slaves. Like, they're better than us. So we're going to go ahead and put an end to this. We're going to go to war with them. So you can read about this potential war in the Enumi Elish, where they encircle the camp of Enki and Enlil and Anu. And they, they were getting ready to go to this war. And Enki comes up with the idea saying, look, I have an idea. There's an existing being hominid on this planet. This is us, the seed, the seed race. Now, this is not Homo sapien sapien yet. This is our cousins, some form of intelligent hominid looks kind of similar to us. And he said, we're going to genetically modify this hominid. We're going to add our essence, he says to it, the same thing, and make them do the load, toil the load, do the work, dig the canals and everything else. So the Ajiji said, okay, but you better get it done or we're going to go to war. And so they began the process of trying to do this. Now, what they started off doing was how do you build a workforce fast? Cloning. So they started off with this cloning technique, but it wasn't working. And the reason why is because it took a lot of energy and time and resources to create a clone, but then the clones couldn't reproduce. Just like if you try to mate a donkey and a horse, you get, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, get that. Um, what is that thing? You get a mule, but the mule can't mate with anybody. So they were cross splicing and all this kind of stuff, and it wasn't working out. So Isis says, I have an idea. I'm going to take one to turn myself. So she took a human, humanoid hominid, one of the most advanced ones that they had. She took the egg out of the ovary. They then 
uh, clean the genetic, some of the genetic material out, added their own genetic material. They called it by slaying a god and and putting it in. And then, so that's in modern technology, in modern science, we call that making a zygote. When you take an egg out of a woman and you alter the genetic material in the egg and you impregnate it and then you insert it into a womb. It's a zygote. She made a zygote, put it in her womb. She carried the baby to term 10 months later, not nine, but 10 months, according to the tablets. She gave birth to the Adamu, which means first man. At this time, there were already millions of people on earth. So the biblical story of this Adam and his Eve, and those are the only two people and blah, blah, blah. And all of these people came from two people. We wouldn't even be here, first of all, because of inbreeding, number one. By the third generation, we'd be doomed because there wouldn't be enough genetic variants. I mean, come on, scientists. You guys really believe this? And so they, uh, she took this baby to term, had the first Adamu. Now, the Adamu, first man, was the most advanced homo sapien. Uh, that they had created. And then she started to want to test this homo sapiens. So they raised him up and then they put him in the Garden of Eden, which is an outside laboratory set up for mating to create more and more of these uh, slaves. She had a mate with a clone, didn't work. Clone couldn't get pregnant. So they knocked him out, took some blood from him, which is where the whole rib story comes from in the Bible, and cloned a woman out of his rib to make another homo sapien to save the time of having to go through the whole doggone process of going to 10-month term. Then they had sex, and it was it was it it worked. They were able to get pregnant. They said, okay, we got something here. Adam was not the first person that they genetically uh, altered with the zygote and made like that. They started doing many zygotes, many. This is where the Hathors came in, the birth mamas, okay? They were in charge of, a lot of them were really in charge of this whole birthing system, this whole system of creating all these new baby slaves. Why they got involved in this at the high level that they were technologically and spiritually able to move forward and back one time and all this stuff, not really that clear, but they were heavily involved in this. And whoever goes to Egypt with me in, in October this year, you, we're going to go visit where the Hathors were. We're going to see the birthing chambers and all that stuff. And so anyway, they do this and then they, um, you know, so they're creating a lineage coming out of this line of Adamus, right? And that is the line that then has uh, Cain and Abel, and then, you know, Cain killed Abel. And that's why when Cain killed Abel, and Yahweh, also known as Enlil, found out about it, he, he kicked him out of the garden, and because he feel the, the, the experiment now is tainted. I got to get this guy out of here. He's, he's, he's an idiot. And, 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 and then Cain says to him, but when I go out there, the people out there will kill me. Well, what people? There's not supposed to be anybody here except for y'all. But of course, there's people out there. There were millions of people out there. So what did God say? He said, I'm going to put a marker on your head. I mean, the mark wasn't a real mark like a slash. It was a genetic mark. A genetic mark he put into his body so that people would know that you were mine. You Don't touch this dude. Hey, this is my people right here. Don't touch this guy. You're going to feel my wrath if you touch him. And he said to him, now go out you'll, you know, and you'll meet your wife. And that's exactly what happened. He went out there and met his wife and started the whole Canaanites, right? Anyway, so it's pretty interesting. This whole lineage comes out of this thing that ISIS did and creates the generations of ISIS, which much later in the biblical text turns into the generations of ISIS. Uh, I'm sorry, turns into Genesis, which is Genesis, the generations of ISIS. That's how it all came about. Long story, long around story short, all right? <clears throat> 
Logan Sincora. Yes, I'm saying Star Wars is real. Star Wars is so real, it's scary. There's a text that you can get your hands on, and it's called the Terra Papers, T-E-R-R-A, which is um, which means Earth, the Earth Papers. It's an indigenous, native, ancient record of the creation of our solar system, and life on our planet, and life in other solar systems in our galaxy. And it reads the same as uh, Star Wars. So George Lucas, hey, guy's brilliant. I got to give it to him. He came across this, I could tell. In some way, shape, or form, he came across these ancient papers. Uh, and he said, this is a great story. I mean, let's turn this into a movie series. And he made billions off of it. And rightfully so, because nobody knew it existed. And so the Terror Papers reads just like Star Wars. Of course, without the love stories and all the other Hollywood stuff that's been added in to make it more entertaining. But the wars, the Republic, uh, the different types of species and beings that develop on different planets and then finally obtain the ability to travel into space, all that's in the Terra Papers. And so it's pretty interesting. T-E-R-R-A, Papers. Uh, you can probably find some of the PDFs online. There's some there you can find. I've got a copy here, a very old, old copy from about maybe 12 years ago, 13 years ago that I have. But it's a pretty interesting read. I'll tell you that much. And it tells you a lot. It talks about Anki and Lil. They're in there, too. It's just crazy stuff. Like, this is, like, really incredible. What are indigenous natives doing talking about Anki and Lil in the Americas? Wow. Powerful stuff. <clears throat> Oops. Let's see one here I want to show. Where is it? Alex says, it's Amun-Ra, the father of Alexander the Great. Great question. Yes, he was. Amun-Ra, a.k.a. Marduk, is the father. I wish I had that guy from that talk. What's the name of that guy on that talk show that says, you are the father? Uh, <laughs> we need that guy. Um, yeah, Maury or somebody like that, right? You are the father. So, um, yeah, Amun-Ra is the father of... Uh, of Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great has records that were discovered where he would talk about the fact that when they would go to the next place that they were gonna they were gonna conquer and take over, that um, there would be ships or some objects flying over there uh, ahead of them, over their military, aiding them in battle against the next country or region they were looking to conquer, which is wild. Absolutely wow. This guy's given written accounts of UFOs helping him fight battles as he tries to take over the entire continent uh, and make it into his own giant kingdom. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. Now, when he got to Egypt, it was when he found out, you know, that it was official that he Amun Ra was his father. Uh, he, he the now when he ousted that pharaoh that was there, that pharaoh that was in Egypt at the time was ruling very brutally and very bad. And the people were actually elated that Alexander had come and overthrew that particular pharaoh. That pharaoh was so far removed from the original pharaohs of the ancient times. But Alexander Great brought a little bit more peace there. And the people were actually happy and, and named him a pharaoh because of the peace that he brought when he overthrew the other guy. Crazy stories there. But it, it was the fact is, that uh, he was half human and half Anunnaki. His father was Amun-Ra and his mother was a human. And there are a lot of accounts of these demigods in ancient texts, and he was one of them, all right? 
Thank you for the donations, guys. All this stuff goes to help underprivileged children. <clears throat> All right. Oh, that's a good one here. Man, where'd it go that quick? Talk on this thing a little fast. I just saw it. Uh, shoot. Oh. Okay. Let's do this one. Richie says, who are the archangels in the book of Enoch? These are the um, beings that are Anunnaki. They came down from, and I have three or four different books of Enoch over here. It's just one right here. Let me see if this is one. I've got one here. That's so many damn books. I don't even know the exact location of where they are on the desk. I gotta pull it without knocking over the rest of the books. Hold on. I actually have three or four books of Enoch. Different variations, different uh, understandings, different. We go two right here. Okay. Now, what's interesting is uh, with Enoch is um, these beings that were considered to be angels, they actually were aliens. That's what they were. They were aliens that interacted and engaged mankind in a way that actually, in a lot of ways, were detrimental teaching human beings how to create weapons um, was one of the most deadliest things that they did and how to use them. And the fact that they were willing to even go to battle with humans. Another thing that they did with Enoch was they gave him an appointed time. They were going to take him into space and they took him in a ship. It was not an abduction. It wasn't the version where they say, well, he was such a good and faithful servant to the Lord that they, that he, he never had to, he walked into heaven. No, 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 no. Read the to this is why they didn't put this book in the doggone Bible, you see, because it's talking about aliens and aliens teaching people how to make weapons and, and make perfume and makeup and make tools and all kind of stuff, make different types of clothing. Also, they were drinking with them, having sex with them, the whole works, getting down and dirty. And, uh, and they gave Enoch an appointed time that they would take him into space. He gave a lot of the records of his, of his estate to his sons and told them when he was leaving and when he was coming back. And then he described uh, he described what the earth looked like from space, a sphere. He saw the water. He saw the clouds. He saw the whole thing. Very descriptive. Uh, and they brought him back uh, at a later time. Uh, he was like an exchange student, one of the very first exchange students, right? <laughs> Interplanetary exchange student. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. But that's why they didn't put this in the Bible. The only Bible that has the full book of Enoch in it is the Ethiopian Bible. It's the only Bible on planet Earth that has that has Enoch book in it. Other than that, you have to buy the book separately or you won't be able to read it, right? <clears throat> but that's, that's what was going on there. Let's see here. Uh, let's see. Oh, man, good question here. Eva Anika. Billy, if the Anunnaki were so technologically advanced, why did they need people to build things on Earth, such as canals? Why not use machines? Okay, great question. They did use machines. The people ran the machines. They had machines which they called that which crushes and that which which crunches. That's what they called the machines. That was a translate the loose translation in Sumerian. That which that which crushes and that which crunches were the name of the machines. But imagine. It still was a lot of work because you got some people probably dropping the hammers like a chain gang. And then you have people on these machines clearing out dirt and mud and everything else. And um, 
they had thought they had talked briefly about using some of the the fashioned beings, who they call them fashioned. So anytime they say fashion, they're talking about creating something. And in my opinion, from the way I see it, from using the word fashion, they're trying to say artificial, because they had a medical center where they had fashioned nurses, nurses that were that were they were as soon as they made them, they knew how to do nursing, they knew how to treat people and everything else. And so to me, that's to me that's um, some form of AI technology, maybe some type of robotic. But they talked about using these fashioned people to do the labor. But something interesting, they came up with the conversation turned into like, hey, well, if we use these fashion people, then what happens when they realize they don't need us? And then if they if they realize they can duplicate themselves and they outnumber us, what good are we? So they said, no, we can't do the <laughs> we ain't doing the AI. We are not doing it. Not on that scale. We'll make a few of these suckers, but we ain't about to make a whole doggone bunch of them. They made one for Gilgamesh on the Epic of Gilgamesh which is a huge account of the true story of Noah's Ark. Uh, they fashioned a, a friend to go on this hero's journey. They made him, he's an android, for uh, Gilgamesh. Okay, and he had incredible strength and speed and everything else. But um, So they had the ability to make these artificial beings with AI. However, they realized that they made too many of them. They would be outnumbered and eventually... AI would take over and they would realize they didn't need them anymore. So they didn't do it. But they did use machines and tools and they were taught how to use those machines, taught how to use those tools, taught how to build pyramids and everything else. Okay. Let's see here. There's so many coming in. Wow. Galang Ness, good question. Are you taking monoatomic gold to stay young? Yes, I am. <laughs> Flat out, yes, I am. I love it so much that I actually sell it on my website. I bought the company that I've been buying it from for so many years. And um, I actually sell it on my website. I, I rebranded it my own. I bought the company, rebranded it to my own company. And uh, we've been selling it now for a very, very, very long time. I don't market it that much because so many people buy it. I don't even need to really market it. But I'll drop the link in the chat to you guys. Every now and then I talk about it. Um, I'm putting the link in the chat right now. So I changed my diet and got on the monotonic gold and stepped up the amount I was taking mixed with colloidal silver. Uh, man, I've just been going backwards in time. I got the Benjamin Button. I'm back to, you know, bench pressing. Uh, oh, not bench press, but dumbbell pressing 100-pound dumbbells on each arm. Back, you know, in the gym. Duncan and everything else. I feel great. I feel better than uh, I have in the last 15 years or so. And I attribute it to, to, the, to the combination of, you know, things that I'm taking. And that's one of them. One of the things I'm taking, I'm protecting my telomeres. I'm protecting my, um, uh, my mitochondria, all these things. So monoatomic gold, I just dropped a link in the chat. You can check it out. It's on my website. Uh, if you want to buy some, I rarely market it cause I really don't have to. Um, People have been buying it in every order consistently every single month, sometimes twice a month for years, years, long before the whole sickness hit the planet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate that. I'm actually uh, in my 50s. I got uh, four, uh, four grandchildren now and five kids. My oldest is uh, 31. And then my other, my, that's my oldest son. My daughter is 30. My other daughter's 28, my other son is 26, and my youngest son is 22. 
and then I have four grandchildren and uh, one's five, one's four. Uh, the other one is two in a couple of days. I'm going to the birthday party. You'll see me posting pictures of that big Mav. And then uh, my youngest one is only four months. So yeah, everybody's growing up. Time goes, man. Fast. Okay, Queen Hickson. Uh, hey, Billy, how often do you meditate? I literally meditate. It's random how many times I meditate in a day. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm laying in the bed. I'll do a meditation while I'm laying in the bed. Before I even get up out of the bed, I'm awake. I'm fully aware, functional. Now I go into a meditation. Now I'm not going into a meditation to go to sleep. I'm going into a meditation to gain powers and knowledge and understanding and wisdom and cosmic energy. And so I do a meditation before I get out of the bed. <clears throat> I do a meditation in the shower. Uh, so typically I'll take 15 minutes in the shower. Part of my shower is a start of a 15-minute break where it's just a meditation in the shower. There's something about the running water and hearing it and feeling it beating on my body, just the sound um, for me. And it lets me get to state almost instantaneously. That's usually where I do my manifestation meditations. And then when I'm exercising, I, that's another form of meditation when I go for my walk. So not during the weightlifting, but during the walking part, the exercising part for cardio, I do walks, walks on the beach, in nature. And so I do my walking meditation. So in any given day, I can meditate two or three times on average. <clears throat> All right. I got to get out of here soon, guys. I'm about to, <laughs> I'm about to lose my voice. Big Rees 81, how do you find purpose in life? The first thing you have to realize is that life is sacred, number one, and that life is life permeates the entire universe. <clears throat> when you realize that life permeates the entire universe and everything that is successful and everything that is unsuccessful in the universe is also a part of you. And all of those lead to learning experiences for yourself. And begin to explore and understand yourself and figure out what you actually love to do. What things make you feel happy, make you feel pleasurable, make you feel like you're participating or contributing to the universe as a whole. That thing is, whatever that passion is. And if you don't know what it is, you need to get out a pen and paper, an old-fashioned pen and paper, and start writing down the things that you like or would like to be able to do. And then once you've created that list... Then get another paper out and start putting those things in a particular order in the level of enthusiasm you have for them. Once you've got that list done, get out another piece of paper and start figuring out which one of those things or draw a line out of the middle. Which one on this side you actually know how to do somewhat <clears throat> well. <clears throat> and on the other side, things that you don't know how to do at all or a little bit, but not well. And then figure out the ones on this side that you don't know how to do that well or can't do it all, if you feel so strong about them that you want to you want to really follow those, then you got to put the plan together to learn how to become an expert at that. If the other side of the table is you have the other things on the left-hand side of the, of the line that you are good at and passionate about, you have to pick which ones you want to follow uh, to, be your, to be your main thing for a combination of, of those. And then what you do is you do this. You research what those passions are. If you have a passion for, I'm just, I don't know, uh, you know, becoming a, a, a designing clothes. You have a passion for designing clothes. Well, now you have to figure out 
who needs that passion in the world, right? So you can monetize it because you deserve to be monetized for your conscious IP, period. And so what you have to do now is figure out uh, what levels can you monetize at? Do I go and work for a company and get my feet wet and learn the system and learn the, and learn the, and learn everything about style and design and the network and how it works and how who the big players are? Do I, uh, you know, look for independent uh, stylists that have started their own companies and maybe I, I um, work under them until I learn the ropes of how the thing really goes? Right, become an apprentice. Do I just roll my dice and start my own thing from scratch after doing enough research? You have to figure all the ways that, you you know, this this passion that you have for styling, for example, is needed in this world and how you can then become the person that and that injects it into the planet. And your side effect is going to be money in your bank account. But so you have to figure that once you figure that out, you have to be like, OK, this is the thing that I want to do. And then you have to do it with extreme passion. And you have to do it with, with extreme passion to the point where you, you have to become obsessed with it. You have to know every aspect and every level of it, top to bottom, inside and out. And you need to create a business plan. This is where most people fail. They don't create a business plan. They try to wing it. A business plan will, 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 will reveal some things to you that you may not have seen before, may not even notice were going to be issues or problems with competition, with, uh, with quality with production, with uh, processing, with dropshipping, whatever the case may be. So the business plan will help you iron out a lot of issues and problems and also find out if your passion, the way that you want to model your business model, if, if it's even viable. And so once you get to that point, the next thing is, okay, I got a viable business plan. My business, is, my business has profit potential. I'm going all in. And then from there, you just go all in and make it happen. You know, but it's a process to it. And um, it starts with really breaking everything down, getting to the root of it, finding out what you really like, what you don't like, and being quite boldly honest with yourself about it. And if you can do that, the side effect is going to be money in your bank account and a happy life. Because when you work like that, it's not for the money, it's for the passion. So you never feel like you're doing any work. I never feel like I'm working and I never feel like I'm doing the work. I never complain. Do I get tired? I'm tired now. But I don't really complain about it because I love this kind of stuff. All right. <clears throat> All right, guys, I got one more, and then I got to go. This is a statement, but I'm going to do a question after this. Cures for cancer are already here. Call Young. Yes, that is very, very true. There's no doubt about that. Very true. There's no doubt. Let's see here. Trying to get this one. <clears> There's <throat> a good question. Deshaun Henderson, where can I find your music? Well, my music is on Apple Music. It's on Spotify, Deezer, Tidal. We just got our music video, Woke Don't Mean Broke Remix, with King Crooked, Donnie Arcade, Lady Luck, and me, Forbidden Knowledge. And it's on Apple TV, Amazon Music. And there's one more music platform. It's on uh, Tidal. It's on Tidal Music Videos. It's also playing on MTV, VET, and Revolt. Okay, so that's pretty cool. 
but we've got a lot of songs out. So you can just type in Forbidden Knowledge on any music app and also type in Donnie Arcade, D-O-N-N-Y-A-R-C-A-D, Arcade, Donnie Arcade, Forbidden Knowledge. You'll see the majority of the music or Cruz, C-R-E-W-Z. And uh, you'll see a lot of our music pop up. Also, one more artist, Richard Wagner, V-A-G-N-E-R, Richard Wagner. He appears in a lot of our tracks as well. So look them up. Sometimes you may hear, even hear the voice of Londrell on some of our tracks. But there's a lot of great stuff out there. Just look it up on Spotify or even YouTube. I even have a lot of meditation tracks. And right now we actually have quite a few dozens of new meditation tracks and videos on Forbidden Knowledge TV. So if you want to get like uh, sleep meditation videos or just meditation videos to get into deeper meditations, all at 432 Hertz, go to 4BK.TV and you'll have the meditation channel in there with all the meditation videos that just stream back to back to back to back to back. You can sleep through the whole night and uh, the meditation will still be on when you wake up in the morning. All right. Pretty cool. All right, guys, thank you for spending some time with me tonight. I appreciate it. If you haven't seen the Black Knight Satellite yet, make sure you go check it out. I'm having a special UFO hunt coming up, and that's going to be in just a few weeks in September. I'm doing a special UFO hunt, and that's going to be for black card holders only, forbidden knowledge black card holders. If you have 10 minted NFTs, you, you can then get a black card from Forbidden Knowledge. The NFTs are on ForbiddenClub.com. And you can come on the UFO hunt with me. We're going to a hotbed of UFO activity. I've been there before. I've seen many UFOs. We're going to go out there again. It'll be myself and Jimmy Church. Black card holders only. And that's going to be September 16th through the 18th. And it's going to be an amazing uh, couple of nights. We're going to record, document UFOs, real UFOs. So if you want to be a part of that, I'm going to type in the link here in the chat right now. You're going to go to uh, ForbiddenClub.com. I need to get eight. Yeah, I'm sorry, 10. It's 10 minted NFTs. 10 minted NFTs from ForbiddenClub.com. I'll, I'll drop it here in the chat for you. All right. Got to give you an opportunity to come out. And it's not just that. When you have a black card, all my events are free like the black card holders that came to the red carpet black tie in uh, Detroit for the Black Knight Satellite. We have the UFO hunt now coming up, black card holders only. There'll be some private yacht parties, some private meetings, some private mystery schools, some online classes, black card holders only, and even some mentoring, black card holders only. So it's exclusive, exclusive for my black card holders. Uh, time is My time is extremely valuable. I, I can't talk to everyone. But this is something I'm doing for my NFTs, giving my NFTs value is access to me and access to some of the things I do behind the scenes. So it's going to be very, very cool. All right. Anyway, guys, look, I love you guys. I appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. Don't forget to go to forbiddenclub.com and check out the NFTs there. Get 10 minted NFTs. Send a screenshot of those NFTs to business at forbiddenknowledge.com. That's business at forbiddenknowledge.com. And we will get a hold of you and get your your black card out to you and then get you set up for to, to meet us out there in uh, Palm Springs for the UFO hunt. All right. Anyway, guys, peace and blessings. Thank you so much. I appreciate all y'all. I want y'all to have a phenomenal, phenomenal night. And I will catch you guys tomorrow. I'm going to go live again tomorrow. So peace. Manana. 
This is Billy Carson with ForbiddenKnowledge.tv. Forbidden Knowledge TV has just reached its one-year anniversary. That's right, one year. And as a show of appreciation, we are giving all new subscribers a free 30-day trial of ForbiddenKnowledge.tv. That's 30 days to binge watch thousands of movies, documentaries, conferences, workshops, lectures, yoga classes, meditation courses, and so much more. So log on to ForbiddenKnowledge.tv from your computer or mobile device or get the Forbidden Knowledge TV app on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon, iTunes, or Google Play today and use coupon code 30DAYSFREE. That's coupon code 30 days free on ForbiddenKnowledge.tv today.